Hello, everyone. My name is Joshua Nather, and I am on a mission to understand how young people see the world. You are about to watch an interview between myself and someone else who is under 25 years old about their worldview, that is their identity, religion, and politics. As you watch this interview, please keep in mind that in 5, 10, 40 years from now, we are not going to be the same people as we are today. And if we are the same people as we are today, then we have done a bad job of listening and learning to the people around us. So without further ado, enjoy. Hello, everybody. This is Matei. Um, I met him a couple of weeks ago, and uh, he was an awesome person to talk to. Um, we're actually connected over uh, theological debate we were having with some people at a uh, synagogue or uh, the Messianic Jewish congregation that uh, yes. I met him at. Um, Matei, tell me like about yourself for two, three minutes. All right. Well, uh, I was born in Bulgaria many, many years ago, and by many, I mean 23. Okay. <laughs> Almost 24 <laughs> at this point. Um, moved over here with my parents when I was 10. Okay. Then have been in Texas pretty much the entire time ever since. Okay. Studied up here in the North Dallas region. Mm-hmm. Went down to school in Houston. Graduated from Rice University. Okay. Um, and I'm now a consultant. Okay. But cool. And you moved back up here. For that is family here in the dfw yes. for you yes okay. my parents live here the rest of my family is in bulgaria still okay okay yeah. um but i've met a lot of great people okay everywhere i've been praise god and definitely meeting the lord on the way of this long intercontinental journey has been mm-hmm. a huge highlight as you brought up at the beginning how we ended up meeting at a yeah. messianic congregation which is mm-hmm. also not the place where i saw myself being mm-hmm. yeah. 20 you know like it 23 it just it wasn't i'd grown up protestant mm-hmm. not jewish by by background or you know, i had jewish friends but they yeah. you know jewish christians is sort mm-hmm. of a, it's the one thing that's really not allowed you could be jewish in anything except believe in jesus pretty much <laughs> yeah um unironically which is very sad um mm-hmm. but yeah it was just kind of a, through an incredible act of series so of providence is uh are you, is there jewish are you jewish in background no no okay no so no. that's my point i'm okay here yeah. i am a gentile uh, through a series okay. of yeah events ending up at a messianic congregation on a saturday and then we meet and now here we are okay sweet what are key points of your identity key points of my identity that's a really good question um, it would be centered around the Lord Jesus mm-hmm. being adopted as a son of God. And I realize, as you ask that question, how important that identity is, precisely mm-hmm. because as an immigrant, sometimes it's very difficult to transition, mm-hmm. um, to find yourself, to to see that you're forgetting a lot about your home country and your native language. Mm-hmm. I can still speak Bulgarian, but it's, you know, it's like mm-hmm. I left to, after I graduated from fourth grade in Bulgaria. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So my linguistic capacity is of a somewhat talented fourth grader, right? Like <laughs> yeah, I yeah. can speak quite well because I still speak with my with my parents. Mm-hmm. But um, imagine being at the literary educational level of fourth grader in yeah. your own home country. <laughs> yeah. But then moving to America, I definitely, I have become an American. I've, I've, I've always wanted to embrace this identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet at the same time, I think Christianity has given me a lens through which I can 
acknowledge the things that are wrong with America while at the same time mm-hmm. being profoundly grateful for all the things that are right. Yeah. That especially people that are born here may be blind to because mm-hmm. they've never lived abroad. They've never seen what it's actually like. Small things here feel enormous. Whereas okay. in the grand scheme of, of of planet Earth, they're actually rather small inconveniences and small injustices. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I uh later if I don't remember, try to remind me. I want to ask you about what you think the people here are blind about, but we'll we'll uh, we'll pause that. Um, so it sounds to me like your identity uh, in Jesus creates a kind of like a foundation for you to have like a home or like identity se- separate from being Bulgarian or American. Um, but it sounds like those are also part, some parts of your identity. Um, yes, I, I think I think identity comes in layers, and mm-hmm. there's something. I think there's only one thing that's appropriated the deepest layer, and it's our relationship to God. Mm-hmm. And then out of that, it doesn't compete with every other identity. It does compete with some identities. There, mm-hmm. there's some things that you cannot identify as, and you cannot live as, mm-hmm. while being in a proper relationship with the living God of the universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you can certainly be a faithful citizen to your country. Yeah. And there are, okay. there are a lot of passages in scripture that indicate mm-hmm. that in a variety of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, submitting to authorities, seeking the welfare of the place where you've been placed at mm-hmm. least. Yeah. That's what Israel was commanded to do in exile for their, for their conquerors, literally. Yeah. Um, lots of examples in the law of Moses as well. So mm-hmm. wherever you look there, there's a paradigm, like how do you behave well as a citizen? Mm hmm in a way that's pleasing to God because pleasing God is the primary thing and mm-hmm. being a good citizen is an important secondary thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, is there any other like secondary or third dairy? Uh, <laughs> third dairy. Uh, sorry. I was just, uh, I was being funny, but third layers of identity um, that come out of being a follower of Jesus, you would say. I think her familial relationships would be okay. another important example. Like, how do we behave with our parents? Mm-hmm. Are we good sons? Okay. How do we behave if we have siblings? Are we good brothers? Are we good sisters? For people when they get married, obviously being a good husband, mm-hmm. a good head of household, which is yeah. quite a controversial thing to say, but uh, <laughs> unapologetically so for everyone watching. Men, you're supposed to lead your households. Yep. Yes. Okay. Um, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and jump into this then. Uh, what experiences led you to being a follower of Jesus? That is, that's an excellent question. Um, part of it does have to do with my background. So Bulgaria is a very nominally Eastern Orthodox country. Okay. It's the official sort of. Whenever you say nominally Eastern Orthodox country, what does that mean? Yeah. What does that mean? Um, we have a tradition and cultural ties to Eastern Orthodoxy. So a lot of people will go light candles when they have a need, for example. Mm -hmm. But there's not a lot of widespread devotion, actual sincere, reflective devotion to God and to this Mm. faith and to this faith tradition. It's more, this is just part of our history. Uh, We go to church a couple times a year for holiday. Kind of like how everybody celebrates Christmas in America, but there's a lot of people that don't celebrate it for what uh it was original not originally in the recent history has been intended to celebrate yes kind of thing is that kind of how you mean 
Yes, and I think I'm answering your question in the opposite direction so far because you're asking me how did I end up becoming a Christian, essentially, and how did this become important to me? Yeah. And I think growing up in a nominal context, even though you're at least exposed to the Mm -hmm. faith, it's often an obstacle because you're desensitized to Mm -hmm. the treasure next door. It's like growing up as a millionaire's kid. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't realize just how significant it is that you have access to this much wealth Mm -hmm. and opportunity. Yeah. And you can tarnish it and squander it. Mm -hmm. Um, But my dad went to England for a little bit and then came back a Protestant. Oh. And he started going to church at a Protestant church pretty regularly. Okay. Uh, and so to be a Protestant in Bulgaria is, is almost invariably to be much more devout because it's so rare. Mm, okay. Um, and and it's it's misunderstood. Yeah, a lot of people. It, you know, it's it's like departing from what's traditional, and it's departing mm-hmm. from all the cultural ties to orthodoxy, which is what everybody cares about. You know, it's mm-hmm. not the actual essence of the faith. Yeah. Um, for okay. most people. They're, mm-hmm. they're definitely devout Eastern Orthodox people. Okay. okay. And so when we moved to America, which was a huge answered prayer after my parents had been applying for green card visas for about 15 years. Oh, man. That's a long time to be wanting to come here. Yes. Well, my, it, it had been even longer than that that my dad had wanted to emigrate, but it was just that's when the lottery opened. Whoa. And so they'd, yeah. they'd been applying every year. And then they started applying on my behalf as well because you can apply for your kids mm-hmm. too yeah. after a certain age. So they'd essentially just given up because Man. they were in their early 40s. It's, you know, mm-hmm. yep. it's, it's the time where you sort of, you realize yeah. I need to settle down, settle mm-hmm. down. Yep. And then the letters came and we came to America. So we st- my dad was like, we need, to, we need to start going to church regularly as a family. So okay. I grew up for about from 10 to mm-hmm. through the end of high school, to 318 in a Protestant church setting. Okay. Um, non-denominational, functionally Baptist church, mm-hmm. as most non-denom okay. churches yeah. tend to be. <laughs> yep, yep. But um, was really blessed by the people there, mm-hmm. but I didn't really get it. And part of the thing is I struggled with um, intellectual doubts. I struggled with sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and Christi- What kind of intellectual doubts did you... Kind of intellectual doubts. Um, I had a really good friend in middle school and early high school who was an atheist. So okay. he was listening to a lot of the typical atheist podcasts and then mm. we were having conversations. Okay. And I realized I, you know, I didn't have answers because I couldn't I, yeah. I mean my my knowledge of the Bible was very, very, very rudimentary. Okay. And a lot of these questions have to be settled at a worldview level, which mm-hmm. I think you would quite like. Yeah. Because yeah. usually an atheist will come along and will say something like, Well, the fossil record mm-hmm. and then the fossil record is true evidence and it definitively uh, means this. Mm-hmm. And Genesis says something totally different about creation. So Genesis yeah. is wrong. So so the God of the Bible is fake. Mm-hmm. Um, and in essence, first of all, there's so much written on how to read Genesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that doesn't mean, I, I, I do think some views are more of a cop-out. Okay. Realistically, like some readings are less plausible than others and they're trying too hard to reconcile um with a scientific consensus that they see as utterly untouchable. Mm, okay. But in, but the truth is, on the one hand, we should be willing to revise our reading of passages mm-hmm. without deforming the passages. Yeah. And on the other hand, evidence is never self-interpreting. Mm-hmm. So um, just because there exists evidence out in the universe and somebody's told you it means this, that actually that doesn't, doesn't mean that that's, that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the correct interpretation of the raw data that exists. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that was really big for me to come to at a later point in life in college because mm-hmm. I realized 
Again, raw evidence, never self-interpreting. It's our presuppositions, our fundamental axioms about reality mm-hmm. that define then the meaning that we that we get out of evidence. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, for the atheist, those axioms are naturalistic. So mm-hmm. there is no room for anything supernatural. Yeah. And so it's not like there was a... F- a neutral examination of evidence that led mm-hmm. that person to conclude yeah. God doesn't exist because that neutral examination is not really possible mm-hmm. because how do you have yeah. indifference in your fundamental presuppositions about the universe? Yeah, It's more you have to do hypothesis testing of entire worldviews. Mm-hmm. It's like when I look at all the raw data in the universe, mm-hmm. let me take atheist presuppositions. How much can I explain? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Why should I even live? And the reality is like atheism can't even answer the question of how do I know truth? Yeah. Because if my mind is just a bunch of chemical reactions, mm-hmm. in in essence, no different than say indigestion. There's mm-hmm. there's no fundamental difference. There's no there's no sophistication yeah. layer. There's no meaning layer. There's no yeah. There's no. In fact, you can't even be sure that what's happening in your head is coherent just because it feels coherent to you. Because everything is random in the universe. Mm-hmm. There's no telos. There's no goal. There's no yeah. Everything is just a. Any sense of order is apparent because you evolve to feel a sense of order in a random universe. Mm-hmm. So, so at that point, it, you know, it doesn't even matter if atheism is true because if it is, it doesn't matter what's true because nothing matters. Yeah, so the, then, the like natural conclusion for an atheist is nihilism. You know, correct. Like, that, oh, there's no actual. So if you're on a, uh, you're trying to find the purpose of living, it's really hard to. Uh, seek out atheism as a purpose like whenever you're looking for purpose because it's or at least have that as a worldview yes and i would push a step further because i think i've, I've definitely met atheists brilliant very intelligent mm-hmm. people who would say yeah i'm, I'm a i'm a nihilist and mm-hmm. nothing matters but then they won't behave that way no no absolutely not and so I think everyone is seeking for purpose and meaning. The mm-hmm. fact that we have conversations, the fact that an atheist would listen to this and be mm-hmm. interested, frustrated, mm-hmm. uh, would say like that's nonsense, or maybe there's a point to this, or any any sort of any sort of intellectual response to anything mm-hmm. um, implies an interest in meaning. It requires that you be interested in meaning. Mm-hmm. So if you say you're not, you're already lying to yourself just by being engaged in this conversation at all. Mm-hmm. Any sort of desire to make sense of the world in any at any level, mm-hmm. even at the most basic level, like locking your 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 car. Mm-hmm. Any yeah. every most basic activity requires some sort of why, a meaning, meaning. a mm-hmm. purpose. And so I've never I've never met a nihilist that even began to live that way. So I think mm-hmm. it's just yeah. mm-hmm. it's a form of deep self-deception that we're all prone to. Yeah. It's um, yep. Yeah. Okay. Cool. That's helpful to know that those are the questions that you're wrestling with. Um, well, and sorry, I I should finish the answer to the original question. Yeah, it's all right. This was sort of a this was very helpful for me to fortify the intellectual part of me, but there's yeah. also an experiential part I think when it comes to looking for faith. Mm-hmm. And at one point I realized that I was now starting college. Mm-hmm. I have all the freedom to do whatever I want, basically. Mm-hmm. I don't live with my parents anymore. Yep. Um, all the temptations of the world are at my fingertips, and I can choose which path to take. Um, and I know that God does not meet halfway. Mm-hmm. Like, you either walk his path with full devotion, or you don't at all. Yeah, or he'll spit you out. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and that's wonderful. That's just mm-hmm. great because there's no he's not going to leave you like mm-hmm. eating dirt, you know, like most of your day and then just like <laughs> suckling on ambrosia for 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 a couple hours a day or something. Mm-hmm. It's like it's all or nothing. Mm-hmm. You're, I'm either going to remake you or or not. Mm-hmm. Um so I was just like, well, from a if we want to put it in terms of hypothesis testing, go read the Bible, look at its promises and then mm-hmm. pray daily. Yeah. And see what happens. My desires changed. Mm-hmm. I broke free of old sins. Um, I was so full of joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, just my entire life became blessed in a variety of ways. And then I, I also started having, like I would read the New Testament and I would realize I already know some of these things even though I've never read them before. Mm-hmm. Because the Spirit of God was just, especially with young believers, Yeah, it, it he leads you into truth. Mm-hmm. That you'll also find in scripture, but he's just, yeah. God is so super abundantly filling you mm-hmm. that you have yep. these wonderful little epiphanies about life and then you see them in the text and you're like, yes. Yes, that's true because yes. he is the way and the truth and the life. So, Amen. Um, cool. So reading, reading your Bible, praying, that was an experience. And then there was also some intellectual stuff that you wrestled with through high school. Um so it sounded like there was some somewhat of like an intellectual basis that you built in high school. And then that led into you having experiences that really um, solidified uh, your faith in Jesus. Is that a good summary of it? I don't know. I'm just. Yes, I think some of the deeper intellectual answers came after I'd started praying more consistently and reading mm, scripture okay. and yeah. also being in community with people that did that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I would encourage anyone that is struggling with doubts that there mm-hmm. are answers out there mm-hmm. to the vast majority of questions that you can pose. Mm-hmm. I just think I remember in my own life, I didn't know how to look for them. Yeah. And to be totally honest, I never even properly tried. Mm, okay. Um, Sometimes, you know, what it takes is you have a you have a deep question about human origins or about mm-hmm. the goodness of God or the problem of evil. And you just need to put 10 hours of work into that. Yep. And, and after 10 hours of work, and especially if you're willing to pray, mm-hmm. um, you're going to come out without a sense of existential dread. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. a lot of doubts are deeply emotional mm-hmm. because we don't we don't actually have the intellectual capacity to truly evaluate mm-hmm. a lot of the objections that are raised. Yeah, at least experientially, I can say that's true, and I've seen it in other people. Yeah, it's more how it makes us feel to be afraid of the possibility mm-hmm. that everything is is a lie that we believe or something like that. Yeah, um, and it's it's really hard for. Uh, yeah, it's really hard for a lot of people to evaluate it, um, and it it just takes a lot of hard work. That's the thing. So if you feel like you don't know something, just put the work in to know or have some kind of understanding or knowledge of whatever that thing is. So And then you won't be in a state of questioning constantly. So yeah. anyways, I just... It's something I see so much in young people that I interact with is that they're, they'll have questions or uh, uncertainties about things, but it's because of the, uh, the lack of direction or effort put into understanding those things, which is not like, not to like say like, oh, you're, it, it's all on you, but it's like most people haven't been 
even taught how to, you know, begin studying, you know, or trying to learn those answers. So there's, so it feels really directionless whenever people try to start on that journey. I really like the way you think about what you believe and specifically in religion. So um, I really want to ask you so many more questions, but this is like usually the spot where it naturally leads into me asking people about how that affects their politics. Sure. Um, so you mentioned uh, something earlier about because of your background as somebody outside of America and specifically your parents being outside of America and coming here um, and then having a rooted identity as a follower of Jesus, that, that led you to see things that some people who are Americans who have been here their whole life that uh, they're blind to. What are some things that you see that you feel like other people are blind to? Uh, I think there's a sense of gratitude for opportunity that comes with the comparison. Okay. You know, if I were still in Bulgaria, mm -hmm. I would never be able to go to a school like Rice. Mm. Um, and they don't have a school like that, or it just there you wouldn't be able to. Period. I, um, well, the, like that is kind of hard to define. There, there are good institutions of higher education in Bulgaria. Okay, but. Some of the opportunities you get at Rice, the caliber of professors that you get to work with, mm, and okay. then also the sheer name recognition of some of these places that you have access to in the United States yeah. mm -hmm. is just unparalleled anywhere in yeah. Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. um, but b beyond that, uh, there's also, it's virtually impossible for an Eastern European or national student, unless you're incredibly rich, mm -hmm. to end up going to a, a prestigious American university. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and that opportunity is much more accessible even for lower income individuals mm -hmm. here in America. And I think yeah. a lot of people that ended up making it into Rice mm -hmm. um, and with a lot of institutional help, like Rice had, had mm -hmm. a variety of affirmative action programs and it was there. Yeah. Um, still some, some, definitely not all, but some manifested a sense of ingratitude mm. and a constant... Um, they would see injustice everywhere. Mm, okay. and, it's, and, it, and it's, you know, it's like the world is like a topographic map. Of, of course, it's not flat. Like we're not yeah. all starting in different places, which, mm -hmm. by the way, is ordained by God. <laughs> Sorry. And <laughs> yeah. I say that as someone that started halfway across the world mm -hmm. and has been so blessed to end up here. Um, yeah, but, but a sense of inability to appreciate mm -hmm. all the opportunity that exists. Okay. Um, another one is constantly looking for other sources of injustice mm -hmm. and discrimination okay um someone who's lived in eastern europe like i can i can definitely tell you in every place that i visited discrimination tends to be significantly worse in other parts of the world which mm -hmm. doesn't mean that whenever it genuinely happens here it's okay or it's invalidated but yes uh it doesn't mean that mm -hmm. but but sometimes i think the entire frameworks that are constructed intellectually mm -hmm. to explain why everything is discrimination or why there's discrimination that permeates every part of our society. Um, honestly, I'm just like, why, why are you constructing this? First of all, you can't evidentially justify this. This is mm -hmm. this is a this is a worldview again. This is not this is not someone sat down and, and looked at a gazillion studies and put mm -hmm. a bunch of data together. No, this is yeah. the inverse. This is someone saying. 
logically, mm-hmm. for example, white supremacy or, or mm-hmm. patriarchy, would patri- would, um, which patriarchy is based, but that's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> Not all forms of it, but some forms of it. Um, but would permeate every every part of our society. And then mm-hmm. the sociological studies that are produced are already keeping that in mind and then they're looking mm-hmm. for data that yeah. can then be interpreted um, to fit those conclusions. And sometimes those conclusions may be appropriate. We can't mm-hmm. rule that out definitely in advance. Yeah. But the conclusions are presupposed and and those outcomes, the, those studies mm-hmm. um, are looked for intentionally. Um, and then that, that disquietude and that uh, mm-hmm. sense of displeasure and and um righteous indignation mm-hmm. is certainly it permeates universities yeah um yep. for example with rice university are the founder of the university the founder of the university william marsh rice i don't know if founder is the right word but he posthumously gave a bunch of money mm-hmm. that ended up uh starting off the rice endowment in the in mm-hmm. the school yeah and so he was a slave owner, and the school was originally only for white men, basically. Mm, okay, yeah. Um, and so there was a huge debate about his statue, which is at the center of the university, which mm. is also on top of his grave. Okay. So his ashes yeah. are underneath mm-hmm. this statue. So he's buried in the center of the university. Yeah. And um, there were a lot of protests, like, we need to move this guy's statue out of there. Mm-hmm. And uh, the university ultimately ended up compromising, so they're moving the statue like 30 yards or 30 feet maybe even so it's Mm. still in the in the academic quad at the center of this of the school Mm -hmm. but it's not at the center of the academic quad on top of his grave Hmm. okay um and i think this was one of those like unprincipled decisions from from the administration where Mm -hmm. where they just want to maximize or rather minimize this pleasure i should say Mm -hmm. yeah maximize quiet down the students and simultaneously not lose too many donors yeah mm-hmm. um but for me it was like okay clearly this guy had some issues there's no doubt about mm-hmm. it and there are a lot of leaders that we can name that had oh, pretty yeah. major moral failings mm-hmm. um but because surprise we're all humans and sinners yes and i don't want to excuse moral failings i don't mm-hmm. actually know like what the nature of his relationship with his slaves was mm-hmm. like, he could have been a cruel master he could have been yeah mm-hmm. one of the less bad ones i guess <laughs> yeah i don't know like I, I don't have any of that information mm-hmm. um what struck me though was that why are we keeping his money but mm. moving his statue like why why do we keep benefiting from the mm. good that he did unabashedly yeah. unashamedly mm-hmm. because you know there used to be a concept like blood money you wouldn't want if someone were an assassin, yeah, you wouldn't want to benefit from his wealth. You would you would want to get rid of it because mm. they're they're like the the wealth is sort of polluted by the immorality of the way that it was attained. Yeah. So if you're linking his legacy and his all of his money because he owned a few slaves, even mm-hmm. though most of his money was made on the railroad investments he made. Yeah. If you're so linking that completely mm-hmm. to his slave holding, mm-hmm. then you should get rid of the money. But the reason why people won't get rid of the money is because it's there's no sense of actual moral consistency here it's Mm -hmm. what benefits me and how do i assuage my sense of outrage yeah Mm -hmm. it's not there's no sense of like victory as in like i can look in the eyes of your statue and realize Mm -hmm. maybe you didn't mean for me to be here but i am here Mm -hmm. and i'm grateful and I mean, I don't know if you've wronged me in any way. I forgive you, sort of thing. I don't. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard because he mm-hmm. hasn't personally wronged you. But, but there's a sense of I don't need to feel 
Mm-hmm. I don't need to feel looked down upon. Yeah. By your grave. Mm-hmm. I'm actually just thankful that I get to be here. Mm-hmm. And as someone that comes from, again, an Eastern European country, mm-hmm. we are white. We're second class white, if that makes anyone feel better out there listening. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's like he wouldn't, he wasn't even thinking about me. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like it's um, America had its own issues, it mm-hmm. had um, its own issues with race. Mm-hmm. Eastern Europeans weren't even like nobody cared. Like the mm-hmm. Irish were lower class whites. Mm-hmm. Eastern Europeans were like, who who are these people? Yeah. Um, you know. So, uh, what would uh, when we say second and just kind of joking. This is a joke. Yes. Yeah. So, so um, the the reason I ask is because uh, it are there any uh, racial tensions that you feel like even whenever you visited between different ethnic uh white people in eastern europe or bulgaria specifically really good question um europeans are incredibly incredibly adept at finding ways to dislike each other for a variety of reasons okay yeah and and it's it it, sometimes it's across what we americans would more naturally perceive as racial lines Mm -hmm. Uh, but in europe it is primarily ethnicity driven Mm-hmm. You know, like Bulgarians and Macedonians can hate each other, even though they're genetically the same, mm, even okay. though their great grandparents are the same people. Yeah. Um, and the division between some of these regions was okay. was very politically motivated. So there's a sense of identity building that divides. Mm, um, okay. Bulgarians and Turks dislike each other, and there's more of like a there's more of a complexion difference between mm-hmm. them. Yeah. And we also have a history because the Ottoman Empire. Um, uh, Bulgaria was a vassal state of the Ottoman Empire for about okay. 500 years. Yeah, but now it's like, you know, modern Turkey is is not doesn't benefit from any of the prosperity that the Ottoman Empire enjoyed, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. So it's just sort of intergenerational bitterness that endures, even though there's nothing, you know, there's nothing to be envious of mm-hmm. to say like you stole all of this from us, give it back. There's nothing to give back. <laughs> yeah. It's like we've all gone downhill since. They just find things to be upset about to be upset about it. I think there are always there are always reasons to be intergenerationally upset. And I think the final example I was going to give was the relationship between basically every European nation and the Roma mm-hmm. minority in, yeah. in those countries. And I'm I'm definitely not educated in the state of of those relationships in, in relationships in most of Europe. Mm-hmm. In Bulgaria, very limited exposure to the actual um, sociological problems there. Mm-hmm. But um like the Roma community has a significantly higher uh, level of unemployment, mm-hmm. and then it is you okay. can always debate like chicken or the egg. You know what caused yeah. it first? Is yeah. it discrimination? Is it they're not willing to work? Is it they're not willing to work so they get discriminated against? It so they can't find work, so they're less willing to, or mm-hmm. less able to work. Yeah. It and and frankly, these are mutually reinforcing cycles. That it that is kind of the point, and I think the Bible actually speaks. Okay. I think the Bible speaks to everything. Believe it or not, I think yeah. the Bible absolutely speaks to politics and to all levels of human existence and it must be obeyed Mm -hmm. everywhere yeah who is it that said whatever the bible speaks to it speaks to authoritatively moreover it speaks to everything i don't know if it was cornelius van til or if i'm i can't remember but great quote that i Mm -hmm. paraphrased um there are real powers and principalities like they're 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 groups of people Mm -hmm. that grow up with certain patterns of behaviors Mm -hmm. and certain conditions that are inflicted upon them Mm -hmm. and their real spiritual forces behind them yeah and 
And those forces continue to corrupt human hearts to blind people. And mm-hmm. people blind themselves and deceive themselves. And so there, there's always, there's this there's this collaboration of evil from us mm. and from an invisible spiritual dimension of reality that is ever present. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, I do think like a lot of communities are caught in genuine strongholds of demonic power. That's just true of everyone though. And mm-hmm. a lot of the time what we're doing is we're, mm-hmm. apart from Christ, we're all severely influenced by the kingdom of darkness we belong to it Mm -hmm. and so we just yell at one another in anger in hate and in unforgiveness in unwillingness to sacrifice for the other person and unwillingness to make restitution Mm -hmm. um, to restore and so of course nothing gets fixed and of course Mm -hmm. there are genuine grievances all over the place and some of them are irreparable you can't fix some of the things that happened three generations ago because that's just Mm -hmm. how do you undo three generations worth of secondary causes yeah um nor is it just to punish sons for father's sins mm-hmm. yeah deuteronomy twenty four sixteen. if anyone's looking it up <laughs> yeah ezekiel 18 but um but these are real things and i think they do need to be acknowledged that the state in which we live is full of injustice mm-hmm. and a lot of people are responsible for it and we're responsible for other injustices mm-hmm. um which i which is i think why the bible is so powerful is because it reduces it it momentarily simplifies all of reality to you're all guilty before god mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean everyone is equally guilty in all ways at all times it doesn't yeah. mean you haven't been hurt in a particularly egregious way mm-hmm. but it does call you into account for what you're responsible for and what your community is responsible for Mm-hmm. And it calls you into restoration as an individual, yep. as a family, as a community, as a state, as a country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of that hope that once was in Europe, some of the greatest Western mm-hmm. thinkers were Christians and thinking along these lines mm-hmm. in a variety of ways, Yeah, especially pre-Enlightenment thinkers. Okay, uh, The Enlightenment is overrated. Yes, offense mm-hmm. to everyone who disagrees. <laughs> but um, that legacy has been lost. And so now Europe is just this secularized mess that is dis- that is convulsing in its own cultural heritage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, dispelling some of the best things, being ashamed of some of the bad things, and then having no recourse mm-hmm. for any solutions except self-destruction. So uh, in light of... Uh your perspective on European culture and uh, some of the issues there um, sociologically and politically, culturally, um, and being here, what are the political issues that you do care about? Here in America? Mm Mm-hmm. And this the the more spe- the more broad question is how uh, how does the worldview that we've covered so far affect the things you care about in politics? Sure. Um, one of the biggest biggest insights for me was reading some of the theonomic reformers. I should define what that means. Yeah, so, <laughs> please do. Reformed. I use the word reformed here to refer to the subsect of Protestant Christianity that is very Calvinistic okay, that yeah. stands in the legacy of the Westminster Confession of Faith mm-hmm. 
uh, and possibly like the second London's ba- London Baptist Confession of Faith. Okay. Um, so is that uh, what's the timeline? That is that uh, like early 1900s, or is that way before then? The confessions are 1600s, but the people that I'm talking about were did write in the in the 20th in okay. the 20th century okay. primarily. Yeah. Okay. Um, but but then they have intellectual and theological ancestors that okay pre-exist them obviously mm-hmm. for a couple hundred years and i mean just christian protestant um political theology where the law of god like the torah the law of moses mm-hmm. is not irrelevant mm-hmm. but actually becomes this incredible source of wisdom for oh, yeah. civic law mm-hmm. and it doesn't mean that we apply everything literally one-to-one we mm-hmm. understand that god actually gave his law in terms of case laws mm-hmm. it's not the systematic legal code with every contingency spelled out. It's if your neighbor steals your ox, yep. he'll have to repay it. I think four times over. Mm-hmm. And if he steals your sheep five times over. Mm-hmm. Um, but if he steals something that's not critical to your livelihood, it's only 20% interest over. Mm-hmm. So, so you see these, you see these patterns, these examples of how law is to be done. Mm-hmm. And they were incorporated in the, um, I believe, late Middle Ages in the mm-hmm. English common law. Yeah. The Deuteronomic laws became a fundamental part of our, fundamental part of our tradition. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these um, reformed writers mm-hmm. just radically reasserted um, the validity of God's law mm-hmm. for all nations at all times okay. to learn from and to obey. And so theonomy, literally just theo, God, mm-hmm. and nomi, law. Mm-hmm. So it's just an affirmation of God's law for mm-hmm. all times in all places. Um, and there's a lot of disagreements within within that theonomic movement. You yeah. know, some people are like literally one-to-one, mm-hmm. uh, the exact law, the exact penalty. Whereas other people are in principle, we have yes. examples that should be more like the common law than... Uh, or it's closer to natural law than it is exactly na- uh, more than it is common law. Yes, and and theoretically in that framework, natural law and biblical law should be in perfect agreement. Mm-hmm. The only the only difference is that natural law is more difficult to perceive. Mm-hmm. It's 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 easier to read a divinely inspired text uh, mm-hmm. with proper hermeneutical principles, which I understand that's that's quite difficult to that's agree on. Yeah, mm-hmm. but. But with and theoretically, if you could perfectly interpret natural revelation without sin deceiving you and you mm-hmm. deceiving yourself, you would reach the same conclusions in theory. Yeah. Um, but all that to say, without subscribing necessarily to every little detail of a particular writer, mm-hmm. this notion that the the scriptures have a lot to say about politics and about law. Yeah. Um, and you see that in the New Testament. You see Romans mm-hmm. thirteen described the state as a diakonos, a servant, a minister of God mm-hmm. that is responsible for punishing evil and promoting good. Mm-hmm. And the person writing this is going to be killed by the Roman authorities in seven years. Mm-hmm. So there, there's always that sense of tension. This is what it's supposed to be. Submit mm-hmm. to the state. Have goodwill towards the state. But we also realize the state can be evil and can mm-hmm. do evil things. Yeah. Um, but this is this is the normative design of of government mm-hmm. to to serve God, and not to serve God by by enforcing every fundamental aspect of morality because you cannot enforce the invisible mm-hmm. things. Yeah, but it certainly is to promote the general welfare of a people mm. that is seeking th- that would then, out of free desire, seek to please God. It seemed would it, uh, 
but promote the general welfare as God defines general welfare. Okay. I should should be clear. I guess I would think of whenever I think of uh, governments and uh, kingdoms and empires being um, servants of God, I think more along the lines of uh, he he raises authorities and he crumbles authorities. Um, in the same way that whenever Satan, uh, the Satan, goes to God and Job and says, can I do this? And then he allows that uh, that spiritual being to do that. Um, I guess I would have the same perspective for uh, both the, su- the supernatural and the earthly authorities intertwined there. So, like, if God, if there's something that... Uh, a people that either needs to be punished or tested, then God would allow that to happen and function through that. So not necessarily that it always uh, is for our perceived good, um, but there there's a design behind it um, that God allows to happen. Uh, I think fun- some of it is functionally because of free will. Some of it is uh, practically for our discipline sanctification and punishment so depending on people time and whatnot and that's uh hard to perceive sometimes but i think that's the whole purpose of philosophy and the study of theology (laughs) but sure and i i definitely agree that is also god also definitely does that Mm -hmm. my thinking is there i do think there's normative language in romans 13 specifically about the state as god's servant to punish evil mm-hmm. and promote good. Okay. Um, and the only thing that I want to emphasize is the state does have that responsibility before God mm, to yeah. pr- to punish evil, what is actually evil, mm-hmm. and in the process to promote what is actually good, which is not to say that the state should do whatever and anything. I think mm-hmm. that the Torah gives us actually very good concrete examples of what it looks like mm, to punish evil and okay. promote good. So yeah. that doesn't mean... The state can now literally just do anything that it says is promoting good. Mm-hmm. Tax 60% of your money and then mm-hmm. redistribute it whichever which way. I think that's why the Torah is so helpful is because it gives you embodied examples mm-hmm. of what restrained strategic governmental authority looks like. Mm-hmm. What what um, some economic regulations can look like that are not overbearing, mm-hmm. uh, but that are very strategic for mm-hmm. setting the boundaries of economic behavior in a society okay. or social behavior in a society, mm-hmm. but then allow for flourishing. Um, and a lot of that is done by pun- punishing egre- egregious evil. Mm-hmm. But yes, I also agree then when the state rebels mm-hmm. or when the state does things that are normatively... Mm-hmm. Not good. God is still yeah. working through that. I think, well, the example I think of is like uh, the Babylonian Empire, you know, conquering uh, Israel and them being in exile. You know, like that was at least the pro- it's functionally God disciplining Israel. Oh, yeah. So it, you know, it does. He calls it. Nebuchadnezzar his servant. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he's like, but, I'm giving him a reward, but your plunder. Yeah. But by all. Uh, by what we know, I mean, it was bad. It was terrible, you know, all the stuff that was happening to Israel. But um, he was God's servant in that, in that yes. case. So I guess that's that's an example I try to think of uh, 
in parallel with Romans 13. Yes. So just a just destructive servantship as well as constructive servantship. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So just throwing it out there for people listening kind of thing. Yes. Um, so do, um, and this makes sense. Uh, this actually gives me some context to why you probably attend a, a messianic congregation um again like it, it is it i think this is another one of those extraordinary moments where i'm like wow lord we're coming full circle here mm-hmm. thanks to your providence and i just didn't i didn't see this coming mm-hmm. again from a reformed tradition which is traditionally a little supersessionist as in yeah the church has replaced israel which i have thoughts on that that are probably that are left for another time or later okay, okay. um but that was the conversation that we met over actually <laughs> yes oh you're you're so right yeah that was a good conversation mm-hmm. it was um, so we don't have to recover it here no but um no, it's just cool coming full circle from there i would like to acknowledge that there are a variety of traditions that honor god's law mm-hmm. in ways where they have more in common than i think they would initially anticipate and that's yeah. awesome that's just mm-hmm. wonderful that you could be messianic jewish mm-hmm. or reformed christian Mm-hmm. or um, maybe Catholic. And and you can all come to very similar conclusions if you have a mm-hmm. high regard for God's law that is written in nature and, and expressed in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, and you yeah. just want a state that actually isn't actively destroying and rebelling yeah. against God, even though God can and does use that mm-hmm. as he pleases. Um, but it's I think we should, we should try to be used by God in blessing and in mm-hmm. constructing rather than in cursing and destroying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and this is just jumping into a little bit of like a theological thing here, uh, just because I listened to a teaching on it yesterday and I, uh, I enjoyed listening to it. And it was on three different passages, but the one that stands out to me in, that's relevant to this conversation is, I believe it's Matthew 19. Uh, where it talks about divorce, right? So, uh, you know, I guess some somebody is asking Jesus about uh, divorcing their wife, and he's like, uh, Moses gave you the law, because there was like this thing called uh, any cause divorce. So like if your wife bring your breakfast, you could give her a divorce paper and legally divorce her i don't know if that's actually written in the law but there was there was like uh, basically guidance given to jews for divorce in law and just like there's you were given more liberty for divorce i'm paraphrasing here because you were a stiff-necked people because you were stubborn right but i say that anybody who divorces his wife except for the except for the cause of sexual immorality and and marries another woman or whatever commits adultery right and causes her to admit, commit adultery if she she sleeps with somebody else so there were uh functional parts of the law that were separate from or at least that that leads me to believe that there are functional parts of the law that were distinct that that time. Um, does that make sense? What I'm sure. Saying? Yeah. Yes. So I think that the the spirit of the law is really important to acknowledge 
versus the the letter of the law because it's not going to all be perfectly functional. I think that I would agree with you on a lot of the theonomy uh, points, but I think this is where you're talking about people within theonomy having sure. a, a whole lot of varying positions. So I don't know exactly where you la- land on it. Um, would you say it's more like strict adherence to it or spirit of it or what level of following uh, the Torah do you think is relevant to our our time and culture? I'm, um, I've am i been in a general equity position, which is what the Westminster okay. speaks of, which is essentially the general principles of these laws are mm-hmm. timeless. Okay. The exact details of the laws are specific mm-hmm. to Israel when they receive them. Yeah. But the principles of justice remain. The point that you bring up is, is quite challenging, though, and I've, I've read a variety of interpretations, like what is Jesus actually saying there? Mm, yeah. Because on the one hand, in Matthew's gospel, you have the strongest affirmation of the continuing authority of the law in chapter 5. Mm-hmm. And then in chapter 23, he speaks about you got to do the lesser things and the greater things. Mm-hmm. Both. Don't neglect either. Yeah. Um. But in chapter 19, there's also the element of, just in general, what is the state supposed to do versus what is an individual that's following God supposed to do? Definitely, I think it's quite unambiguous from chapter 19 that that a follower of the -hmm. Lord Jesus cannot divorce his wife arbitrarily. And the only permission that's given is for sexual morality. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there's the interesting question of like, should the state law be as restrictive or should the state law make the same concession as Deuteronomy made? Mm-hmm. That, Well, that's the interesting point, especially when we're discussing theonomy and how it affects, because the, the whole idea is how does our theology affect our politics, right? Sure. So at that point, it's like, well, do we just use uh, the Old Testament law or also use what Jesus said to... Um, guide our our politics well what what jesus said and did is what makes the old testament law relevant to us Mm -hmm. yeah because the old testament law was given to israel Mm -hmm. but it it comes to all nations through the one true seed of israel Mm -hmm. the the corporate representative of israel who's who's the messiah Mm -hmm. who takes all the nations back for himself restores them to proper standing with god and so through him and only through him do we then have access to the riches of the Old Testament. So I would say definitely it has to be through the lens of what Christ has accomplished. Okay. Um, and what he taught. Uh, but but that doesn't always make it simple to discern the difference between what the state should do. Mm-hmm. And like what what is the civic component of this law and what is the moral individual okay. component of this law. Well, then um, let me ask you this. Uh, functionally, based off of this... Uh, theonomistic view uh what does that uh cause you to be passionate about um functionally in the politics that we have that's a that's a great question so um, i do think there's a very good biblical case to be made that having very high taxes is actually immoral (laughs) (laughs) i Agree. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> uh, and we can go through that. I think one of the finest examples is in First Samuel when Israel asks rebelliously for a king like the other nations mm-hmm. in rejection to the kingship of 
of the Lord mm-hmm. exclusively over them, which to have a human king was fine because Deuteronomy speaks of that. Mm-hmm. But to have a king to be more like the nations is catastrophic. Yeah. And so they get that. And one of the curses is they'll take 10% of your produce. So 10% tax on top <laughs> of the, the tithe that was already instituted was mm-hmm. burdensome. Yeah. And then he'll take your sons and daughters as slaves mm-hmm. right next to the taxation. I on. can't believe after this was presented to them that they said yes. Like, yes. what on earth? Because, <laughs> anyways, like, your sons will go to war, your, he'll take your daughters as slaves, and oh, I was just like, wait, what? Yeah. you heard this and you were like, yes, we want to keep Yes, like, yes. Please yeah. explain. Actually, don't. <laughs> don't. Don't explain. I don't need to know. <laughs> um, but, but on the other hand, and I used to be very libertarian, in mm-hmm. my understandings. Uh, but at the same time, I do want to acknowledge there are passages like the Jubilee mm-hmm. and years of release and the reinstatement of traditional clan-based territory mm-hmm. except in cities in the Torah. And that the Torah is incomplete without those economic resets. Mm-hmm. So they're just... And, and a lot of them are l- less radical once you think about them than they're sometimes framed as. To say that you cannot permanently sell land in the mm-hmm. countryside is just to say that you can sell leases on land. And, the, mm-hmm. and it explicitly explains you should price it based on how many years of harvest are left. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you're just not permitted to permanently sell off land, which is mm-hmm. an economic safety feature. But it actually allows the market to function freely within those strategic economic constraints, mm-hmm. which is something I think we can learn from because it um, it shows you what economic regulation can look like. It needs to be thoughtful, strategic, to put boundaries against abuses mm-hmm. and yeah. against the, you know, against a small group of people starting to own up everything, mm-hmm. which says quite a bit about like mega corporations today, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and speaks to people that, are, that have a more populist mindset, mm-hmm. and to people that have a more conservative mindset, and to people that have a more liberal mindset. Yeah, scripture has something to say that answers the concerns of all sorts of people. Okay, uh, but it does that while still allowing market forces to function. That I know that mm-hmm. a lot of us are quite fond of in the West. So uh, it sounds to me, I'm just. trying to track here that you were libertarian but based off of the economic restraints you see in the old testament it leads you to be less libertarian to provide more constraints on large corporations not so and part of part of these thoughts are not yet fleshed out i think they're genuine concerns about corporations and we do need to when we read scripture i think it's easy to just there are two areas we can fall into, either hyper-systematizing everything to the point where some of the minority teachings in, in the Bible, like some of the less prominent teachings or mm-hmm. some of sec- or even sometimes entire like lines of thought that just don't fit into our systematic theology mm-hmm. are totally suppressed. So mm-hmm. we compress a three-dimensional image into two dimensions. That's one problem. But then another problem is only reading a certain few passages that make sense to us and we like, mm-hmm. and then just not paying attention to the totality of Scripture. And in both cases, we're silencing the the multifaceted nuance of what the Bible says. So I think sometimes we do that in daily living. We mm-hmm. try to prioritize a certain vision of capitalism and free markets so much that we don't step back to think like, okay, but maybe maybe there's a border that the Bible will draw here on this excess. Mm-hmm. And, and that matters more than... 
what they told me about Adam Smith in college, right? Mm, And how many of us have actually read The Wealth of Nations? Like 600 Mm. pages of archaic (laughs) language and a Mm -hmm. guy just vibing with some things that he saw on the way back home from something. Mm -hmm. Then he wrote economic theory out of it and a lot of it is brilliant. But um, I think for me, the fundamental thing is an openness to let the scriptures speak Mm-hmm. To learn from also the great minds of the, the patristic writers and other writers in mm-hmm. in multiple Christian traditions and what they've said about these texts and to learn from history, what God has done in history, what mm-hmm. our successes and our failures have been, and to always seek to be obedient to the text with a willingness to let go of what we grew up with and what we were mm-hmm. taught. Yeah, yeah. So be willing to learn, grow, and look at data outside of a conclusion so like don't don't have a conclusion and just look at the data to affirm your conclusion like you said earlier sure yes and um, give give scripture epistemic priority to okay. use big words okay um is there any kind of like organization that you're a part of that or uh activist things that you do to um that or that your belief in theonomy and politics and whatever else cause you to be a part of or write petitions or how you vote anything like that um i've stepped back from some of my political enthusiasm okay. a little bit yeah. because i noticed that a couple of years back that it was starting to bear on me and embitter me a little bit mm, just being yeah. frustrated with everything that's happening and that doesn't help that's relatable yeah <laughs> i but. i have friends that are quite active i have friends that are quite active in the um abolish abortion movement yeah mm-hmm. and so they're quite satisfied with the pro-life mm-hmm. wing because you know they'll say like abortion is killing a human being blah mm-hmm. blah, blah blah and then yeah they're like okay let's pass a law that treats it that way mm-hmm. and then the pro-life movement will say this is this is outrageous this is harming the movement and it's like okay then but why were you speaking as if as if you were as if you thought this was murder if you're not willing to treat it that way so mm. there's a lot of yeah there's okay. there's a lot of back and forth dissatisfaction and and the number of people that are actually willing to go all the way with what they see as fundamental principles hmm. are quite few but really? on the other hand yeah you feel like that yeah i think so okay okay i think most people are not willing to be intellectually consistent with their own thoughts hmm. with okay. their own with their own views and a lot of the time that's good because we have many wrong views. So <laughs> so whenever we're whenever we're right on something, sometimes it's bad that we're not right on something else. But whenever we're wrong on something, at least you're not wrong on two things. Yes. <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. And I wouldn't use that as a safety principle. I would just <laughs> no I would try no. to humbly pursue as much truth as possible. But mm-hmm. um and and let's not be postmodern. Not every question is equally difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are some times where the truth is pretty plain to see mm-hmm. and we just yep. don't want to. Yep. Yep. And other times it is a little bit more complicated, but yes. that doesn't mean that we have to overcomplicate everything. Yes. So Okay. Uh so not not as active right now. Um you notice a shift in your heart, so you kind of stepped back from it a little bit. Um where do you land on can I ask you where you land on abortion? Sure. Uh, I think it should be legal and the women and the doctor should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Okay. Yeah. All right. I like it. I think that's um, that's actually just a basic consequence of what we 
believe about the child being a human being mm-hmm. yeah. and also about women being able to make full autonomous decisions that they're responsible for. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. I will. I do want to add this, though. I do understand that there is special concern. There's, on the one hand, the ideal vision of where we want to get to, and mm-hmm. there's, on the other hand, how much we've been lied to, mm-hmm. and we've been told for generations, like, this is, increasingly, we're being told this wasn't always the, you know, it used mm-hmm. to be like a, a last case resort that's yeah kind of maybe morally ambiguous, but you have the right to make that decision. And mm-hmm. now now it's something that's celebrated in a victory mm-hmm. to get an abortion. It's a, It's an assertion of your own control over yourself, your own autonomy. Yeah your own value as, a, as an independent human being. And the lies run so deep that I understand um, I, un- I understand that we need we need a period of transition where, mm-hmm. where the mind of this country is purified mm-hmm. before we can enforce these laws properly because a lot of women have been victimized to some extent by the lies they've been told since, since they were little. Do you feel like, um, and let me ask you this, uh, not that it invalidates... Uh, your perspective but do you know any women that have this gung-ho approach to abortion or is this mainly a perception from media that oh no i definitely i mean i was in college until about a year and a half ago Mm -hmm. Um, i had yeah i had multiple friends that were friends genuinely friends that were Mm -hmm. devastated by roe coming crashing down and then um um like they would march they mm. would they would they were very active okay so um, they're very pro choice yes okay okay and and again this is this is one of those challenges of the, of this is why i say there are powers and principalities behind this because mm. i can i feel like i can actually love people mm-hmm. that i fundamentally disagree with that i think are even doing evil things mm-hmm. um but it doesn't prevent me as seeing them as people that need God's mercy and rescue, mm-hmm. yeah. In the same way that that I did, and I still continue to actively need, mm-hmm. even though there is a difference once once you become incorporated into Christ, that that you are you are rescued and you continue to be saved continually. But mm-hmm. yeah, but I think on the other side, that's that's definitely not what is, what's experienced. It's mm-hmm. the same thing with the transgender issue. Like, how do I tell you I love you and I genuinely care for you? Um, and therefore I cannot affirm everything that you believe about yourself mm-hmm. because it is leading down a path of destruction. How do I tell you? I love you. I care about you. I like spending time with you. Um, mm-hmm. mm, I want to be as honest and as frank with you. And at the same time, I disagree with, I think what you're doing is catastrophically wrong. Like, mm-hmm. It is ethically horrific. Yeah. And, um, all the parallels to child sacrifice in the ancient world, very, mm-hmm. very apt, incredibly yep. appropriate here. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of ways in which we live in a deeply mythologized world and and, and we're so proud of ourselves that we think it's rational and, and mm-hmm. scientific, it's modern. But in reality, th- sorry, I, don't, I hope this is not too much of a tangent. No, it's all good. I was um I've been rereading the Lord of the Rings and okay. then the Tom Bombadil chapter mm-hmm. the first one anyway where his wife walks in and she's introduced as Goldberry daughter of the river had me thinking about how one of the fundamental features of mythology is this capacity to link the inanimate with the animate uh mm-hmm. and to link one species into another mm-hmm. it's like Mowgli was raised by wolves or you know mm-hmm. like a bell wolf or or um 
Goldberry, Daughter of the River. Seamus and Remus. and Exactly. Yeah, like how they were raised by wolves and they were the... Anyways, it's the Roman mythology. but And... And what is evolution, if not the ultimate, like, systematized link between the inanimate, the evolution with abiogenesis at the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, between the inanimate and the animate, between species a- and Abiogenesis as in non-biogenesis? As in abio, non-life, mm-hmm. genesis, the origin of life from non-life. Mm, okay, uh, so, yeah. And in reality, if we step back, of course, like life had to come from non-life in pretty mm-hmm. much every worldview. That's what we believe in Genesis, mm-hmm. that the human was created out of dirt and that before that, God had started spawning mm-hmm. life into existence in the ocean, mm-hmm. on the dry land, in, in, in the skies. Mm-hmm. Um, and regardless of how those reconcile or don't reconcile, that's not mm-hmm. immediately my point. But all these mythological elements that are that, that have truth in them, that there, there's, there is truth in life came from non-life there is mm-hmm. truth in there's a relationship between the species mm-hmm. um the exact nature of it varies from specific uh mythological tale to another mm-hmm. it varies between genesis and i think what we moderns say yeah. um and so without um i'm just stepping back and looking at all these different stories that we tell i think it's important to notice that the modern evolutionary tale mm-hmm. it lies within that field of mythological explanations of existence because mm-hmm. we can't really observe most of what most of what textbooks will ultimately conclude most of what scientists will piece together mm-hmm. there are limited pieces of evidence that exist in certain places in the historical record in the mm-hmm. fossil record and then we draw the lines based on certain assumptions that are sometimes non-falsifiable you can't falsify the assumption that of survival of the fittest just mm-hmm. you presuppose that the fittest survives by definition because mm-hmm. by surviving it is the fittest Mm-hmm. So the fittest survives by de- so it, it's a circular self definition mm-hmm. that sustains this worldview, and that doesn't mean that the worldview is inherently wrong. Mm-hmm. That do- just because there's circularity, every worldview has circularity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we need to evaluate its validity elsewhere. But um, I say all of that because we do live in a mythological age. Mm-hmm. We just think we're so rational that we don't we don't notice. We believe the same things about connections between animate and inanimate, between mm-hmm. connections between the species, uh, about. You know, our child sacrifices don't have to happen in the context of an Aztec table, t- mm-hmm. temple. They can definitely happen in a very sanitized, modern, scientific facility mm-hmm. yeah. where you are sacrificing for the same things. Economic prosperity, mm-hmm. autonomy, freedom, um, a better life, so mm-hmm. a career. It, it, these are basically the things that the ancients made child sacrifices for yeah, it's a, a good harvest it's uh it's not this uh spiritual it's it's not uh as directly spiritual idolatry as much as it is idolatry towards self and uh it's almost like this very narcissistic uh perception of the world like everything is perceived about how it benefits me so it's a it's a form of worship of self yes um, and it, 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 I'm saying it's fully spiritual. Okay. It's yeah. like it's like Lewis says in the Screw Tape Letters that mm-hmm. one of the best things that the demons in his little fictional oh, yeah, tale yeah. did was convince people they don't exist. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I I guess I would say I agree with you that it's fully spiritual, but it's not uh, from the perspective of the perpetrator. It's not perceived as yes, spiritual. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think we're so we're so proud of ourselves for being so rational, we don't see just how blind we are. Mm-hmm. We think yeah. we've outgrown all the childish childish um 
myths and um, patterns of thought that every human society ever had mm-hmm. uh, in yeah. some form. But here we are. We're doing the same things without even without even the depth and sophistication explicitly of mythology to sustain them. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. we'll we'll go watch Marvel movies and they'll captivate our mind just as actually even more than probably ancient Athenians were captivated by their own deities. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people that think about Marvel all the time, just as one example. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Marvel movies are really fun. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not against them in general. But the fact that there's actually something more respect about, about thinking Zeus is real, and so I'm going to live that way, then Tony Stark is clearly a fictional character, but I'm going to live with Tony Stark in my mind all the time and mm. be and like yeah. constantly be thinking <laughs> about him. So yeah. we haven't outgrown anything. We're just so self-deceived and empty and confused and in need of a real mythology, which mm-hmm. of a real God that's not mythological in the sense of made up, but mm-hmm. he's mythological in the sense of all of our everything that we see in the universe, every trajectory of beauty every tie, and meaning. Every tie that we want to make between nature and uh, some spiritual background to it and meaning to everything we see, there's a reality that that does mean something. There is a spiritual nature behind it. Yes. And somebody did create it with purpose, with intention. There is an epic story yes. that is told and we see that in the Old Testament and that fulfills that desire in us for those who seek it. Yes. Whereas people who if there's any kind of uh natural or spiritual deception seek out that desire elsewhere whether that's that worship is not going towards god it's going towards themselves it's going towards uh tony stark it's going towards zeus or whatever it is we see it consistently throughout all time and all places that people have this desire to worship and if it's not by jesus and Elohim and Adonai and the one true God, it's filled by something else in their life that is not yes. correct. Yes, blessed words. Exactly right. Okay. Um, it sounds like that is something you're very passionate about. Is there something you do to try and get other people to see the truth versus living in a state of mythology and self-deception? Um, I'm a big fan of apologetics okay. and a variety of apologetics. I'm fine with presuppositional, evidential, mm-hmm. classical, yeah. anything, any true statements about God okay. delivered at let, the right time for the right person. Let me ask you this. Uh, and this is, I love the way you explain things. Uh, although I want to, I I actually do like in a really like practical sense want to know is it is it the way just by the sense of believing it, do you uh, include this in conversation with your coworkers? Is it evangelism? Is it the groups that you're in that you try to um, influence this way? Um, or is it more just like this, like, it can be passive. Like, okay, I'm not, I'm not living an active in this season of my life. It's a different season of my life. Um, but I just want to know, like, are you, uh, just because it seems something that you're so passionate about and you're very articulate about it, is there something you're doing um, or actively seeking out to uh, help other people out of this self-deception. Does my question make sense? Yes, yes, yeah. No, that's that's a great question. I try to incorporate as much... I try to live in the way that God wants me to live okay. as best as I can understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to just openly, to resist the urge 
to be silent about God or when there's a perfect opportunity. Mm, um, okay. So just in everyday life and everyday conversation, even sometimes replacing little little things like as luck would have it, or I don't and nobody really says that. But <laughs> let me think. Like um like good luck. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know, just I think there's a tendency in us in small things and in big things to hold ourselves back and and mm-hmm. we shouldn't. Like I do try to talk about God freely at work mm-hmm. even when sometimes I feel like this is a little awkward but it's like no. Mm-hmm. No, like it would literally it would be dishonest of me not to give the Lord credit mm-hmm. because he provided me with this blessing on this trip yeah. or or that, that I've had a great time with church friends this weekend and I mm-hmm. should mention that they're from a congregation that I'm visiting. Mm-hmm. Um I should talk about the things that I see when I watch movies mm-hmm. that that relate to ultimately themes that that point to God, mm-hmm. and I I shouldn't hide the fact that for me as I'm experiencing this movie, they obviously point to the Lord, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. that it makes the movie so much better. I shouldn't hide away these conclusions, and I try not to. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing is, so I don't I don't personally go do street evangelism in the mm-hmm. moment or anything yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, I'm not opposed to it at all. Mm-hmm. It's just not something that I've done. I try to be honest and deeply involved in the lives of the, of the people that are in my circle okay you try to be present yes okay uh, another thing is prayer makes such a difference there's just prayer and prayerful reading of scripture mm-hmm. shows on your face yeah. the glory of god remains on the faces of people that spend time with him mm. and you can just see it in the way that someone talks yeah if that person has been knows the lord like transcendentally Mm -hmm. experientially supernaturally transrationally however you want to say it Mm -hmm. it's not fully explicable but if you just spend time seeking god Mm -hmm. he invisibly shines upon you sometimes visibly in some people's cases (laughs) Um, like moses (laughs) yes yes but but he will be present you will be different Mm -hmm. you will speak with different conviction you can ask for more of that you should Mm -hmm. okay I've got I've actually got one more thing. Okay. Um I've recently I've had this burden for a while but it's been especially strong recently and I've I've leaned into it and I've been reading a lot about it and trying to practice it. Healing uh, healing prayer. Okay. Um there's a very very strong tradition in church history tracing all the way back to the Lord himself mm-hmm. and the apostles and their disciples. Mm-hmm. Uh of praying for healing and the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus announced he announced by starting to heal people and cast mm-hmm. out evil spirits from them, cleanse them of leprosy, even raising the dead on mm-hmm. occasion. And there's been a healing ministry of healing prayer in the church always. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's never fully vanished. There have been, you know, there have been centuries where mm-hmm. people were more skeptical. Yep. Um, but, but it's just such a fundamental part of the way Jesus presented the gospel. And there are many normative passages in scripture that speak about God healing people that would repent of their sins Mm -hmm. and would seek him. Um, There's James Mm five, there's Exodus 15, Exodus 23, there's second Corinthians, sorry, not second, second Chronicles six. We have the gifts of healings in first Corinthians 12. Mm -hmm. Jesus commands the apostles and then the 72 to go heal. Um, And, Interestingly enough, in Matthew's gospel, the apostles are only called apostles once. They're just called the disciples, the 12 mm-hmm. disciples or Jesus' disciples everywhere yeah. else. And then they're told, go disciple the nations. 
mm-hmm. teaching them to obey, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, yeah. teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And so in Matthew's own theological categories where the primary category is not apostle, but disciple. Mm-hmm. And that generation of disciples is meant to replicate another generation of disciples, passing all of Jesus's teachings back mm-hmm. uh, or down from generation to generation. That would include the the summons to go proclaim the gospel while healing and casting mm-hmm. out demons and so on. And I'm not saying everyone has to do that, but I'm just, it's really exciting to think about the fact that God is willing to meet people's needs and we just don't ask. Mm-hmm. And yeah. how many people would, would be willing to believe in a God that they see heal someone, mm-hmm. in a God that heals them? Yeah. Um, and, and that's definitely possible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like, I think the proclamation of the word has power in and of itself, mm-hmm. but, but God is willing to supply a superabundance of evidence for his existence and his compassion, his character. Okay. And I just don't think we, we pray for it earnestly enough. Okay. Sweet. I really appreciate this perspective. What do you think the meaning of your life is? The meaning of my life in the abstract I will actually, okay, I've been, I've been talking about the Westminster Confession of Faith a lot, but mm-hmm. I do think it sums it up really, really well. Um, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Okay. But specifically, what that looks like in my life, I'm not entirely sure yet. Okay. I do have a burden for praying for healing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've recently also been burdened with the, with the sense that I have to go to Jerusalem sometime soon. Okay. There's a war in the Middle East right now, so maybe not immediately. <laughs> Praying that the Lord does bring peace to that and repentance mm-hmm. on both sides. Yeah. Acceptance of Jesus as mm-hmm. the Messiah that he is. Yep. Um, but beyond that, I don't know. I'm open. I just want I want to surrender my vision of my life mm, to, into the hands of God. Okay. Okay. You want uh are you in a prayerful season about what that looks like? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So that's great. I love that. Um, what? <coughs> man. <coughs> Sorry, I got like a... <coughs> okay, there we go. Back to normal. Um, what is something that you encourage other people to think about and ask themselves? Does it matter that I'm a person? Mm. Okay. Do you care to elaborate a little bit? Sure. <laughs> I think a lot of worldviews mm-hmm. cannot account for it. Like the moment that you get to, does it matter? Mm-hmm. The answer is no. And so I think those can just be dismissed out of hand because they're mm. u- they're they're functionally useless to us, even mm. if they're true. It doesn't matter if they if you believe them or not because if it doesn't matter it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Step back and think if the question if any if any why question is always answered with it doesn't matter. Any why question always no exceptions. Can you imagine mm-hmm. like you couldn't do it why should I get up in the morning? It also I think the only uh it's like what you said and I I just stated it in a rough way because this is true. If if you believe in something that it doesn't 
functionally matter if you believe it or not like the question of why right if if it functionally doesn't matter that you believe it the only reason you would believe in that or choose to be self-delusioned is to live in sin functionally that at least that's yes. um that's like 99 percent of cases is that you would believe something that allows you to continue the lifestyle that you do because it allows you to continue to live outside of truth so yes Yes. And don't pretend it's otherwise. Mm-hmm. We've all we we all do it. We all do it to some extent. Yeah, we all do it. But mm-hmm. uh, but that never means it's okay to do it, and mm-hmm. we should always stop doing it mm-hmm. by the help of God's spirit. To the second half of the question, why does it or like does it matter that I'm a person? That I'm a person um, deals with a lot of other worldviews that mm-hmm. are probably less common here. Okay. But like eastern mysticism where you're one with the universe i think a lot of worldviews have some sort of spiritual dimension to them new ageism Mm -hmm. the variety of new age views yeah but but ultimately your personality fades into the impersonal energies of the universe Mm -hmm. and that doesn't that also doesn't account for 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 our existence Mm -hmm. and the richness of of the reality we experience Mm -hmm. and our consciousness um and I think when when all is said and done, you need the universe makes sense and is beautiful and multidimensional and mm-hmm. Technicolor, uh, yeah. IMAX, HD, XD, whatever whatever it is. Yeah. Um, when there's a personal God at the center of it, who created it all mm-hmm. as a reflection of Himself, where everything draws life from Him, from His sustaining power and Word, mm-hmm. and um, and is drawn back to Him. The very cosmos expands infinitely, almost reaching for the infinity of God, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Okay. And yeah. so, um, and if you lack a personal God of love at the center of the universe, which a God of love, a triune God of love makes the most sense on top of that. If, if, it, mm-hmm. if, if in fact it's even possible to, I'm not, I don't think it's possible to have a God that is eternally loving, that doesn't mm-hmm. have some multiplicity within his unity. Yeah, which essentially leaves you only with uh, triune Christianity, mm-hmm. um, yeah. because then God has genuine love within Himself in the multiplicity of His persons, even mm-hmm. though He is one God. Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah, sweet. Um, thank you so much for your time. It has been wonderful talking to you. So anyways. it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'll see you guys next Saturday. <sighs> Here we are. At the end of the video, since you're here, you might as well consider liking and subscribing. Always remember to keep on seeking to understand and love the people around you. I'll see you next Saturday, guys. Bye.